We're very excited to be presenting this latest episode of the Future of Conservative Foreign Policy series presented by the Vandenberg Coalition. So for those of you who don't know me or the coalition, just very quickly, my name is Carrie Filippetti. I'm the founder and executive director of the Vandenberg Coalition. Um, and we're, we're essentially an experts network that focuses on promoting a strong and proud American foreign policy. Um, so we've been holding events as part of this series to focus on what conservative leaders think about the future of American foreign policy because we're in this moment of really review. You know, there's many people on the American right that are continuing to be internationalist, and then there are others that are much more isolationist in orientation. So what does that mean about the future of the party, and what does that mean about the future of the United States, particularly as we face a critical election year in 2024? So we've had conversations with policymakers, thought leaders. We most recently had Senator Cotton and Senator Ernst on as well, fellow Iowan, um, as you'll, you'll hear Congresswoman Hinson is from as well. And um, you know, our, our objective really is to do what our namesake, uh, Senator Arthur Vandenberg, suggested, which was he said that he was, quote, hunting for the middle ground between those extremists at one end of the line who would cheerfully give America away and those extremists at the other end of the line who would attempt a total isolation, which has come to be impossible. Um, before I introduce uh, Congresswoman Hinson, I do want to give a special thanks not only to the Vandenberg team, but also to Winning for Women, which is an organization that we partner with uh, many times. They're a 501c4 that focuses on female leadership uh, in Congress. They've endorsed uh, Congresswoman Hinson, and they are a, a wonderful partner to us in, in many ways, and we're grateful for their support. And we're also very grateful to King & Spalding, which is the host of this event, and they've hosted many of these other events as well. Uh, and we have one of the most beautiful views of the White House and the um, EEOB that there is in Washington, DC. So thank you very much uh, for that. So with that, I am very excited to introduce Congresswoman Ashley Hinson. She is a native of Iowa um, and has served her home state in various capacities over the years. So she spent almost a decade as an award-winning um, on-camera reporter in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and then became the first woman to represent Iowa's 67th district. Following four years in the Iowa State House, Congresswoman Hinson was elected to represent Iowa's second district um, in Congress in 2020, and this is a position that she continues to hold today. We are very grateful uh, for your uh, joining us today, Congresswoman Hinson, and I'd like to just start by sharing a little bit about your, uh, your work in Congress. Um, so you currently serve on the House China Select Committee, led by uh, Congressman Gallagher, um, where you bring a wealth of experience and a keen understanding of the challenges of the U.S.-China relationship. You also serve on the House Committee on Appropriations, including the Homeland Security Subcommittee, Agriculture, Rural Development, and Food and Drug Administration Subcommittee, um, as well as the Financial Services and General Government Subcommittee. So it's a lot for a uh, newly elected member of Congress. So I'd love to hear just a little bit about why you wanted to run for Congress after a successful career as a reporter, um, and maybe a bit about your district, the second district of Iowa, um, and what the needs and priorities of your constituents are. Well, thank you, Carrie, for having me to the Amber Institute, for having me in the guest today. It's great to be with you all. And as well, thanks to Winning for Women. They've been a, a great a supporter of mine and partners. Help make sure that strong women and conservatives are being elected to Congress so that we have a, a solid voice uh, for our constituents here. Um, it is a, a great honor of mine to serve in Congress. I did, uh, as Carrie mentioned, uh, I am a recovering journalist, as I sometimes joke, but that's mostly because I had to get out of bed at 2 a.m. in the morning to do the morning show for 10 years, which I figured if I could do that, I could do just about anything in D.C. if you're hardy enough to get out of bed at that time of day. 
Um, but really what it came down to was um, I, I had covered all these politicians in Des Moines and uh, what was happening out here in D.C. I had seen what worked really well, what didn't, what really mattered. I had traveled my district and heard from directly from Iowans uh, their, their best moments and their worst moments, right? I had seen that all as a journalist, and I thought— oh my gosh, it's time to start doing something about this. And I had a couple of like striking moments, I would say, that really inspired me to think, okay, yeah, I should step up and do something. First of all, we had a major natural disaster. In 2008, we had a terrible flood, billions of dollars of damage in Iowa, um, economic damage, and people's lives were turned upside down. So I got to cover both sides of that. And I saw the response legislatively, where you had uh, legislators on both sides of the aisle working together to come up with good flood mitigation policies. In so I was really inspired by that. And then just a few um, years later, on his way out the door, our Democrat governor with the Democrat legislature enacted a 10% across the board cut because they had overspent. We have a balanced budget amendment in Iowa. And I was so frustrated by that as a taxpayer. And I wasn't making very much money. I was getting my rear out of bed in the middle of the night. And I was so offended by that that I just thought I could do it better. And so fast forward to 2016 when I first ran, I went door knocking with my boys at the time. My youngest was three. Now they're almost 13 and almost 11. So they've kind of grown up around this. And uh, I, I like to think I'm raising some good young conservative boys too. And so uh, I'd like to start by focusing on your role in the China Select Committee. Um, so it's your second term in Congress and you're, you're a member of this committee. So what are the priorities that you've seen within this committee and what are the greatest successes? Well, I think it's, it's a great honor to be included in this. Obviously, Speaker McCarthy believed that um, the, the relationship with China was such an important one, um, but also uh, a serious threat um, to our uh, national security and our economic security. Uh, I think I, I've been very inspired by the work we've been able to do on the committee. It's the most bipartisan committee in Congress. And our priority has been focusing on uh, true strategy. How do we make sure that we are strategically competitive with the Chinese Communist Party. We've been very clear about um, that battle not being with the Chinese people. They are uh, as many victims as uh, the, the Chinese Communist Party oppresses its own people constantly. So we want to be very clear about this. Our challenge with policy is with the CCP. So a lot of the approach we've been taking is, let's say militarily, what do we need to be doing here in the United States to make sure we are competitive with their military? You see a lot of the policy that we have worked on included in this year's NDAA, for example. Uh, we put out a series of recommendations um, dealing with Taiwan. We've seen serious escalation in the Taiwan Strait, for example, from the Chinese Communist Party, the military, you know, increased provocation. And that is dangerous for us uh, obviously, in the future. So how can we make sure that we're more competitive uh, with our allies in the region, with Taiwan, and supporting them as well? So that's been a lot of the focus of our committee so far. And you mentioned my committee assignments. It's really interesting how kind of all of these things have intersected. On the appropriation side, obviously, FSGG and financial services, economically, we are very intertwined. Our economies with, with um, the United States and with China um, with trade, with the amount of capital that's invested. So there are a lot of serious uh, conversations that we've had as a committee about how do we not necessarily fully decouple, but strategically decouple or de-risk, as we've been talking about with many of the financial services entities. Where are the key areas that you see, I mean, especially representing Iowa, right? So oftentimes when we talk about China competition, we talk about technology, but there's also things that China's doing with respect to agriculture in the United States, with respect to influencing our digital networks. So how do you sort of speak to Iowans about this challenge? 
Well, I think first and foremost, it's about educating people about the true risk that is in our backyard. Um, in my district, and I was pleased to welcome uh, both Chairman Gallagher and our ranking member, Raja Krishnamurthy, to uh, Tama County, Iowa, where just over a decade ago, we had a Chinese spy ring that was actually busted trying to steal our seed, seed technology to take it back to China to reverse engineering. So we know they're trying to steal our intellectual property, whether it's seed, whether it's tech, whether it's thought uh, patented uh, uh, you know, products, uh, we know they're trying to steal that, and that is literally happening in our own backyard. So at that same hearing, while we're exposing this kind of um, malign activity, uh, we're also talking with, let's say, the Soybean Association in Iowa. China is their number one purchaser, right? So we have to balance uh, being competitive with them and holding them accountable when they do things wrong, which you know I think is a, another part of this conversation is, should we be appeasing China or holding them accountable? And I, I have some things to say about that, obviously, but uh, I think it's really important that we figure out accountability measures while still preserving access to those markets because they are vital to producers. You mentioned the term appeasing China, and I know you've um, criticized President Biden for a policy of appeasing China. So what is it that makes you say that his policy is uh, is appeasing China? And what are the types of things that you think we need to be emphasizing to correct for that? Yeah. Well, certainly our adversaries around the world watch how we welcome leaders like Xi Jinping to our country. He's a genocidal dictator. The president admitted as much, but we rolled out the red carpet for him uh, on his most recent visit to San Francisco. And instead of actually saying, hey, we want accountability for the Chinese spy balloon or opening up a police station so that the Chinese Communist Party can harass Chinese Americans or opening up a, a military base in Cuba so they can train and, and posture against the United States. Um, instead of being strong on that, they're actually loosening up sanctions on companies that were sanctioned for human rights abuses under the Trump administration. And to me, that sends the wrong signal. That sends a signal of appeasement and bowing down to someone like President Xi instead of saying, hey, we want to work with you. We're going to take everything you say by what your actions are, not necessarily by what you're saying, but we, we want to work with you and we value our trading relationship. But we need to make sure you're fulfilling your end of the deal and being fair. And that is how you can be strategically competitive versus diplomatically appeasing them. What do you assess as China's um, sort of key intentions or motivations? I've heard people describe uh, the CCP's goal as sort of supplanting the American-led system. You not only were a voice in drawing attention to um, the impact of sort of Chinese IP theft as it relates to seeds, but also were one of the leading voices drawing attention to the discovery of an illegal Chinese biolab in California where they had samples of HIV and, and Ebola and other you know really dangerous pathogens. So what is it that they're sort of trying to do from your perspective and what the committee has? Well, I think it's very, very clear they are trying to undermine us at every single step. Um, you mentioned the, the lab in California. If you haven't had a chance to read our committee's report on the Breathy Lab, please take the time to do it. It is pretty eye-opening, and I think it, it begs the question how many more of these types of lab operations exist in this country. And I think had uh, the local uh, ordinance, um, the, the local level uh, person not flagged that things were out of code and running up the chain and then persistent, uh, we would not know the full scope of what happened at the Reedley lab. Yeah, you mentioned HIV, and they had mice uh, actually bred to be able to genetically spread COVID. So this is where it comes down to accountability, right? So we should be asking the Biden administration to hold China accountable for their role in spreading the COVID-19 virus around the world. 
Uh, we need to make sure our law enforcement agencies are actually investigating these things rather than trying to brush them under the rug. There were multiple failures by the CDC and the FBI when it came to the Reaper Lab investigation. So um, I think that's just the tip of the spear, though. It's one uh, example of how China is trying to uh, research and spread disease to take out Americans. They're doing it through, um, you, you talk about um, IP and, and tech. They've done it through uh, inserting their technology in our networks. It's why we have to, what we call rip and replace, right? We need to take out uh, these Huawei and ZTE engineered technologies that in essence could just be used to spy on American citizens. We need to replace them with materials that are going to be safe for our telecom networks to use. So we can counter this, but it's very clear their whole goal is to undermine and overpower. And President Xi has been very clear about his ultimate goal of by 2049 that China is the dominant socio-economic and military power. And, and you focus on the telecoms infrastructure with the Defend Our Networks Act. Do you want to share a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I think this is a good balance between um, being fiscal responsibility, fiscal responsibility, sorry, I was in a real place, right? Um, <laughs> fiscal responsibility and, and making sure we're still investing in priorities that we need to. So I, I think it is absolutely vital that we, again, rip these, these uh bad malign technologies out. So we're using unused COVID funds. We're ripping that back, I guess you call it, so that we can get that out to our smaller telecoms. We have some in Iowa who have this technology still in place. We need to make sure that they have access to um, internet and, and safe and secure internet. Um, so basically we're saying, hey, let's redirect those dollars to these smaller telecoms because there's a huge gap and there's a huge need there. So that's the, it's that simple and that's the intent of the bill. And, and I want to get to the fiscal responsibility uh, question, because I think this is a key part of the debate in the conservative movement as well. But before I get to that, Congressman Gallagher uh, wrote a recent article about TikTok and its influence, particularly as it relates to the Israel-Hamas war. So how do you assess the influence of TikTok on particularly young Americans? Well, uh, I have not let my kids have TikTok on their phones. I uh, have been very clear with all my neighbors as well. Get it off your kids' phones. Um, it is a propaganda tool for the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and look at the amount of discord that they've been able to sow uh, just on the conflict with Israel and Hamas. Um, imagine what they have done, for example, with election interference this, this way and being able to spread influence. Um, I had the luxury of being able to meet with some of our counterparts from Canada just a few weeks ago. And they were literally telling us stories of how the CCP had uh, played in their elections in the last cycle. Um, They're putting out reports on that now. Um, so really, it comes down to, I think we should be banning TikTok. I think it is very, very clear that they are a Chinese Communist Party tool. And while their kids are watching um, videos that actually enrich them and educate them and grow them as people, ours are watching um, videos that dumb you down or uh, videos that spread a specific, specific point of view. Um, and that's their whole intent. Um, on the... You mentioned Canada, and I'm just curious, how do you assess, oftentimes when conservatives talk at least about Ukraine and Russia, they often use this phrase of burden sharing. Um, how do you assess how our allies have performed as it relates to being aware of and reactive to the threat posed by the Chinese Communist Party? Well, it was, it was certainly eye-opening to me to hear uh, directly from some of our um, Canadian uh, members of parliament counterparts. Uh, they have a China committee as well, and they have a large number of Canadian citizens living in Hong Kong. Much, much greater than American citizens. So they are keenly aware of the threat um, posed by the CCP, especially to their, um, their citizens. 
citizens. That said, I think that they realize that um, they are not necessarily the same size as the United States in terms of influence and power. And so I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's worth starting having those conversations, and certainly our committee has tried to elevate that. Um, we've tried to elevate the importance of uh, having conversations with uh, the UK, with Australia, with Japan, um, our allies who uh, share the same values that we do, so that we can start to counter some of this influence and, and try to unite wherever we can in terms of policy, um, because ultimately, what we don't want to see happen is a conflict with Taiwan um, happen, and then nobody knows what the other countries are going to do. So I think that having those diplomatic relationships and starting to have those conversations right now makes a lot of sense. That said, I think the, the most powerful tool is deterrence, but that is done through strength. And so that's where I think, um, as far as our allies and our relationships, that's why it makes sense now in terms of foreign policy to be focused on how can we be better partners? How can we be better military partners? Do we need to be doing more training exercises? Um, which is something, obviously, that we put out as a committee uh, product in Room 10 for Taiwan package. So going to this question about um, what I'll call, you you sort of uh, refer to it as fiscal responsibility and national security. I call it being a budget hawk or being a defense hawk. So yes, right. So this is, this is what I want to dive into because um, the current uh, traditional conservative, at least as I've always understood it, is both, right? A budget hawk and a defense hawk. But lately we've seen those two camps get sort of pitted against each other. Now, you've been a budget hawk your whole career in politics, going as far back as the Iowa State House continued to be. But you also just made allusion to Reagan's policy of, of peace through strength and to deter you need to show strength. So how do you balance those two things? And why do you think budget hawks and defense hawks in the Republican Party often are battling up against each other? Well, I, I think really the answer here is the proper oversight needs to be happening around these dollars. And that's really, when I have traveled through my district, I, I have people on both sides, especially, for instance, when it comes to Ukraine, right? And they see huge amounts of money going out to other countries, and they think, oh, well, and this is the argument I've been hearing is we need to be focusing on our um, our own safety rather than um, the safety around the world. Well, I would argue you can do both as long as you have the right policy to back it up and the right oversight to back it up. Um, and, and specifically, you know, when I, when I look at that, we've, we've added an inspector general for Ukraine, for example. Um, China, I can tell you this, is trying to use uh, these investments around the world as incentive to align with China. We've seen it. I think it's now about two-thirds of the world population is under potential influence by Belt and Road Initiative projects. That should alarm everyone. Um, in terms of the number of countries that have now engaged or plan to engage with China. Um, so we need to be thinking strategically about where we're making those investments, how we're doing it. But most importantly, members of Congress need to be asking the serious questions about where is the money going, making sure that that proper oversight and follow through happens, because that is I think that's the ultimate concern that our constituents have is we don't want to be writing blank checks to people. Uh, we need to make sure that the money is going where it needs to go. Now, that said, I think we have gone through in our appropriations bills this year, there's been kind of a laser focus on um, with the Fiscal Responsibility Act and the debt limit deal earlier this year about truly reining in not only discretionary spending, but looking at the bigger picture in terms of our nation's debt, because I think it is one of the greatest threats to our country and our next generation. You know, I mentioned my boys are 10 and 12, and, um, you know, I think about the amount of debt that they are going to be responsible for carrying as the next generation. And by 2032, I think the debt service will be about $3 billion a day. So we have to do something, but I think we need to be very, very, um, you know, like I said, we went in kind of with a, a scalpel this year, made some strategic cuts, but at the same time, I think made investments where we need to, including in defense. 
Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting to me how so much of the conversation centers on what is essentially 13% of the budget, you know, defense uh, discretionary spending. And then, you know, 76% of the budget is obviously in things like entitlement programs, healthcare, and so on. I, I heard a statistic that if you zeroed out the defense budget literally to zero, there would be no measurable impact on our on our debt. All of the discretionary, you can get rid of every single government agency and we would still have a major debt crisis. I think by 2029, I, I saw a CBO chart that, you know, one of those charts that goes like this. And I was like, well, what are we doing here, right? We have some bigger conversations that we have to have, but we have to start somewhere. And so my goal, especially in divided government, where we have uh, a Republican-controlled House, Democrat Senate, and Democrat White House, has been to really make as many uh, small wins as we can get, and then make sure we're, we're celebrating those, and then making the case for why, hey, we need some real change here. And I think the American people understand the budget grew a significant amount. Um, our appropriations bills, some of them were 30% higher over the last couple of years. I mean, that's unsustainable, and I think the American people the last time I saw a chart that went, you know, in those two different directions is actually the chart that shows uh, President Biden's approval rating um, when it comes to uh, approve, disapprove on uh, the date of our withdrawal from Afghanistan, which was when um, President Biden went into the net disapprove um, and has stayed there ever since. And so um, I'm just curious, looking at the Biden administration, how would you kind of rate them on foreign policy? You know, we've obviously seen uh, issues in Afghanistan. We've seen failures um, uh, all across the world, you know, uh, increased threat from China, increased threat from Iran, increased threat from Russia. Um, what would you recommend a future administration do differently? And what has been sort of the core of these foreign policy failures in your mind? Well, we've had just, it seems like unforced error after unforced error, and all of those in an additive way um, are what our adversaries are watching, right? They have been emboldened by failure after failure. So when I said earlier that we've moved from, you know, strategic um, competition and deterrence to diplomatic appeasement, look what it's gotten us. Um, it has emboldened our adversaries and, and, and our allies, I think, when they're looking at us, they're probably shaking their heads going, what would you say you're doing here? And I, I think that's really true. You mentioned those countries, Iran, Russia, China, we have kind of a new axis of evil that's developed and been emboldened. Um, I would argue that under the last administration, you wouldn't have seen Russia invade Ukraine because we were strong on foreign policy and they knew um, that the administration, uh, President Trump and the administration meant what they said when they said, don't you want to fear us. Our adversaries need to fear us and our allies need to trust us. And I think that we have lost that um, under this administration. So um, I think, you know, you mentioned the Reagan doctrine of peace through strength. It works, right? It, it's, it's shown that it works. And we need to make sure, again, that we're helping support freedom-loving allies around the world. And the best way to do that is by making sure we're, we're strong and we can help. What do you think? Do you think there's a relationship between there's, we've heard people speak about this sort of axis between Russia, Iran, and China. Do you, how do you kind of view their relationship? Um, and how do you view the threat of one as relating to the threat of another? Yeah. Well, I, I think it, their relationship is strategic. Um, and they're doing exactly what we should be doing around the world. I mean, look at, so China is developing these relationships by using their uh, infrastructure and their investment money. Iran is using its natural resources and Russia too, right? So all of those things are based upon needs and strategy. And when you look at that uh, alliance, I think that should scare everybody because 
that's very powerful. Uh, we've gone from being an energy net producing positive country to now, you know, we're not exporting as much energy as we used to. We're not producing as much of our energy. And we're becoming more reliant on um, foreign adversaries for oil, for example. Or we're pushing policies, for example, with EVs that only benefit uh, China in the long run, which is using slave labor to produce the batteries that we're going to become reliant on. So I think, um, you know, when I look at the bigger picture here surrounding those relationships and and the kind of alliances that they may have said or unsaid going forward, I think that should certainly um, keep us up at night and make sure that we're uh, making the proper investments to be competitive. Republican criticism of President Biden has often centered on, on what you've just described, this sort of lack of, of um, involvement internationally, the sense that he has um, shown weakness on the world stage. And yet, some of your Republican colleagues are arguing for even less intervention and even less um, alliances, sort of referring to the alliance system almost as a means of getting us sucked into war as opposed to something that would prevent war. So how do you kind of make the argument either to your Republican colleagues or to your constituents in Iowa who may be generally skeptical of American leadership and make the argument that, you know, we shouldn't be the world's police, the rest of the world should handle its own affairs? Well, again, this is about relationships and deterrence. And I think ultimately we can fight uh, war here in the United States, and I hope it never comes here, and I hope my boys never have to go fight in one of these conflicts. But that is what, you know, we are facing. If we have a conflict somewhere else in the world, it can easily end up here. Look at what's happening with Israel and Hamas. Iran is definitely involved in that conflict, and Iran hates Israel. Iran hates the United States. Um, so we need to be cognizant of the fact that we have these, these pockets of activity that are truly anti-American um, around the world. And so that is why it is important to be strategic in how we're making those investments and those alliances, strengthening the countries through better trade agreements. I think not everything has to be military. Um, we need to be focused on expanding um, trade. Uh, you know, I mentioned the Soybean Association. They want more market access. So those market access programs that are included in, for example, the Farm Bill or the Ag FDA Bill are going to be absolutely cr critical, but they're also going to help us to be more competitive and to counter some of these influences around. So that's, I, I think it's wrong to be so isolationist. I think you can be protective, but at the same time, make investments in places that can be more competitive and, and that in itself can be I'm going to ask a couple more questions, and then we'll open it up to the audience. So um, prepare your questions, and we'll um, we'll share this microphone uh, around the room. One thing that we haven't really talked that much about um, is Israel and and the war with Hamas. Um, it's interesting because it's coming at a moment where the United States and Republicans in particular had been arguing against focusing on the Middle East. You know, Americans were frustrated with what has been described as 20 years of war and sort of started to pivot away from the Middle East and focus more on China. So one, how do you address the argument that in order to appropriately counter the threat that China poses, we need to look away from the rest of the world? Um, and secondarily, what do you think should be um, America's policy as it relates to the war between Israel and Hamas? Well, I, first of all, I, I stand with the people of Israel, uh, hard stop. I think that we need to do everything we can to eradicate Hamas. Israel is our greatest ally in the Middle East, and we need to do everything we can to make sure that they can continue to enjoy freedom. I was in Israel um, in February, a year and a half ago, and actually toured the Kibbutz Kfar Asa. So I was with the, the very people who um, Hamas came in, and many of them lost their lives that day. So it was heartbreaking for me to to know that I had been there and seen 
the way people were living peacefully under that constant threat of attack from Hamas, and yet they were continuing to live peacefully. So um, I firmly stand with the people of Israel. I actually met with some families whose um, family members have been taken hostage. And so over the weekend, learning a little four-year-old girl, Abigail, was released. It was, as a mom, it was uh, wonderful to see because I had um, seen her aunt and um, uh, her cousin uh, here in, in D.C. So it was really amazing to see. Um, I don't think we can take our eye off China, but I, also, I don't think we can take our eye off the Middle East. I think we have to look at both. Um, you talk about the alliance, that's one thing, but both of those things are happening concurrently, and so we absolutely need to take both of the threats serious. I think that's why standing with our allies, like Israel, is really important to that region. Look at the work that happened with the Abraham Accords. I think it's really important we try to restore that going forward. So diplomatically, that's the way to do it, to deter, is to have strong alliances like that with Arabic and Israel, Arabic countries and Israel. Um, and then focusing on China, again, we need to make sure that we're holding them to account for any deals that we do make with them going forward, um, whether it's uh, trade or otherwise, to make sure that they're fulfilling their end of the deal. And if not, I think we need to make sure we have you, you mentioned um, being a mother, and um, one thing that the Vandenberg Coalition has done, we have this series called the Valiant Women Series, and it focuses on female leaders in national security. And the audience is really young women who either are in national security or want to go into national security. So this is less of a foreign policy question, but I have to ask, given this is a priority, and Vandenberg is run we do have one male member of our staff, which I always point out. I always say he's our diversity hire, um, but we have six women and, and one man. Um, and so this is something that matters to a lot of us. I see a lot of young women in the audience as well. Um, I know that you're also a member of the maternity caucus and the pre-K and child care caucus. So can you just briefly, how has being a mother, one, informed your policy making, and two, how have you balanced the demands of your national security position and the campaigns with continuing to be, you know, present for your family? Yeah. Well, the kids go with me in my minivan sometimes on the road, so there used to road trips. Uh, my, my mom van, I joke, it crossed 200,000 miles earlier this year, so I think I can get it to 300,000, but... Um, no, I, I try to be as present as I can when I'm home. Um, I make sure that I'm walking down the school bus and there when they get home from school. If I have to jump on a call maybe in the evening, and that's you know obviously a priority, but I try to make sure that I'm there for my family when we're not in session. I think that's really, really important. And I think you can do both. You just have to be really intentional about how you how you work. You know, when I when I look at our our work here in DC and how my, my personal experience has informed that. It's what I hear out of the district too. You know, I'm I'm talking to so many employers, small businesses who are like, we we need people, but we're hearing childcare is an issue. I have personal experience with that because I remember what it's like to write a check and find out, oh shoot, daycare is going to cost me nineteen thousand dollars for two kids this year. Um, I'm a working parent, right? So I I think that that brings a, a added um, context and perspective to the role that maybe some members you know haven't had to experience. And so I think it's it's an important part in not only informing policy, but in, in, in having conversations with my colleagues about how things are actually going to filter down. Last question from me. Um, I always like to end on an optimistic note, which these days is challenging because of the threat of the current war you know, between Ukraine and Russia, the current war between Israel and, and Hamas, the current threat that Iran poses, the threat that China poses, and so on. But throughout your career, you have emphasized that you're a proud Iowan and a proud American. So what are the things that make you most optimistic about foreign policy and let's just call it the American spirit today? Well, 
I uh, meet people all the time who are stepping up to serve our, our military. Um, I am inspired by them every single day. Um, I have a chance to see so many young people who want to go serve in our military academies. So when I get those, I get the privilege as a member of Congress to be able to nominate young men and women to go serve in, in the military. And that to me gives me such great hope because I, I hear from them. I They still have hope in our country, which I think is it's inspiring to me. Um, and I try to make sure that, you know, when I when I think about my kids and inspiring patriotism in them, um, I try to be a good role model and example for them, too. And I feel like I'm doing okay. I went to go hang a Christmas decoration on Max's door. He's my oldest. And he has, I forget, he has put this um, sticker that says, I stand for the flag on his door. And so I, I feel like I'm doing okay. My kids are patriotic and, and they believe in the, in the country. But I think it goes without saying, America is still the greatest country in the world. And I think I was the best team. <laughs> okay, well, um, we're opening it up for questions. Um, so my colleague Sophie is going to pass around the microphone and just raise your hand if you'd like to ask a question. And we have this gentleman right in the back. Uh, thanks very much. And thank you very much, Congresswoman, for a really good description of what you're doing and the China Committee and all of that. And I think all of us would agree that we wish the Congress would work as well in general as your committee is working on these important issues. My question, I want to drill down a little bit on this really interesting question that you raised earlier about the need to promote our soybean exports and other agricultural exports, including Iowa and, of course, elsewhere, and the, the Chinese uh, as being a big customer. The question is this, and I really want to try to drill down a little bit into the sort of the political economics of Iowa's soybean exports to China. The question is sort of this. How much ability do they have in being able to exert leverage over American foreign policy with respect to their imports of U.S. soybeans? Is it a question of price, quantity, quality? Are there, is their hand going to be forced? Are they going to have to spend a lot more money to buy from Brazil? Can you inform us a little bit about that? Well, and, and certainly you can think on that. They will go elsewhere if the United States market disappears. But I think the levers that they can pull are certainly um, some, something that our committee is looking at across the board, not just for soybeans, but uh, for other areas. We have one, for example, um, mining operation here in the United States out in California that mines and then now processes and refines critical minerals. Um, as soon as they entered the refining uh, market, China flooded the market and was able to drop their price by 60%. So you talk about the levers that China is able to pull to undercut the American economy. Um, it's things like that that definitely give me pause, but it's why I think we need to be making investments like China has done around the world, where they're saying, hey, we're going to go to all these countries. We don't necessarily need to pay for roads and bridges, but I think what we do need to do is open up the ability for, for us to sell our products to other places and, and have fair trade deals. This administration, it, it took a significant amount of time to get a trade wrap in place, and I do not believe they have prioritized trade as a means of diplomatic foreign policy, which I think they should. I think that benefits uh, Iowa farmers and Iowa manufacturers, American farmers and American manufacturers. And so I think that that is the way, concurrent with the, the deterrence measures that I talk about militarily, um, we should be focusing on all of those things at the same time, because I think that provides us with great strength through those relationships. Robbie. Sorry, Sophie. I always make people cross the room. Uh, thanks very much for doing this. Two quick questions. The first, um, 
you guys touched on this, but it seems like people are talking about China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, sort of in the same breath now. In fact, a lot of your colleagues have brought up the term the access of evil again. Um, I'm wondering what you make of that, um, if you think that's an accurate descriptor, given the interconnectedness uh, of all of these threats they're facing, or, or if that misses the mark. Um, and second, um, do you think uh, Washington, members of Congress, members of the administration have done an effective enough job selling the American public on continuing to support Ukraine with more military aid, more funds? Um, and if not, what would you like to see different? Thanks. Let me tackle the Ukraine part first, because I think I, I tried to hit on that earlier just a little bit in, in referencing that I think what I'm hearing from Americans back home, Iowans back home, is that they just don't want to see blank checks, right? So as long as we can justify and show people that we have the proper oversight on those dollars and that the need is actually there, we can make the case. I think I can go home and certainly make the case to my constituents about why I'm going to support um, a certain amount of aid. Um, you know, I supported one package right when the war started, and then I have I have voted against other packages because I didn't believe the proper oversight was in place. So as long as I can put that filter on, I think that that is a job that we have to do a better uh, we have to do a better job of uh, communicating that to our constituents back home, so that we're very clear about. Uh, as far as the the acts of evil. Um, I think it's very clear, you know, when we trace the money um, fell from Iran to Hamas, I call that evil, what they've been perpetrating on the Israeli people. Um, that's why I think you're going to see Congress voting later this week, or the House will, on um, a bill that will make sure none of those dollars can go, the, the assets that were released, the $6 billion, none of those dollars can go to Iran, because we know money's fungible, and they are going to take those dollars and then use it to finance um, harm toward Israelis and Americans. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, it's about that strategic relationship. All of them are leveraging the things that they have that they all need. Um, it makes them less reliant on the United States um, and our allies around the world. Also, you know, when you think about what they could do to the financial markets, um, you know, if there is a conflict with Taiwan, the, the risk to our American economy is huge because of all semiconductors that they control, for example, how much of an impact that would have on us. And they all know that, right? So they... They have a vested interest in um, undermining us at every step of the way and empowering themselves. And so I think that's what we're seeing kind of emerge through these initial diplomatic efforts, uh, whether it's Putin and Xi meeting together or the Ayatollah meeting. Um, we're, we're seeing certainly those um, those relationships start to develop and, and be nurtured. Should alarm everyone. Anna. Oh, and then we'll go over here. Hi. Um, one, I just want to, as a, as a mom and as a former House staffer, just want to thank you for your leadership when it comes to women's issues and for working moms. Um, but just really quick, I, I want to just ask you a question about fentanyl on the border, right? I mean, so that's kind of a big, it's a major topic. It's also a huge issue in, in Iowa. And kind of how would you grade the Biden administration on how it's handling the fentanyl crisis? And in an ideal world, like what would you want to see being done both on fentanyl and kind of to in, in the border security space? Uh, well, they get enough. <laughs> uh, it's very clear that this administration has completely failed its southern border policy. I've been down to the border twice. I've had a chance to meet directly with CBP agents, and they know, they knew going in, they were like, this is going to dramatically change our jobs as soon as they knew Biden won that election. The amount of fentanyl, the amount of methamphetamine that's making its way into Iowa now, they have completely undercut um, the process because they're just funneling it right up I-35 I and I-80 comes right through Iowa. So we've literally got the crosshairs right on our state. 
and it's not just drugs, they're trafficking people and children, um, which as a mother really terrifies me, right? You think about all these poor kids who are being taken advantage of every single day. Kids and women and men too, for that. Uh, so they get that for me on border policy. And when it comes to fentanyl, you talk about that relation or the, um, the welcoming that they gave to President Xi and the deal that they made on fentanyl. Well, yeah, they, it, you should never sacrifice a deal like that for uh, loosening restrictions on the human rights of these, right? Which is what they, in essence, did. So the, the best way we should be tackling the fentanyl problem is to actually focus on accountability, make sure anybody who is manufacturing the precursors for fentanyl is actually held accountable. Uh, because we know even when the Trump administration was able to get China to, to, to declare fentanyl scheduled drug, all they did was ship the precursors to Mexico over the cartels so they get a flat out F from us. We've passed a, a border security bill that I think would help move things in the right direction. And I'm hopeful that as all these other conversations around aid to Israel and potential aid to Ukraine are happening, that we're focusing on real policy changes at our southern border. Because at this point, throwing money at it isn't the issue. It is truly an issue of policy change. And I'm hopeful we're going to make some, some, some substantive I will just add, um, I'll speak loudly. Um, oh, thank you. I'll also add, for those who are interested, um, there's an organization, actually one of their representatives here, Connor Pfeiffer, um, called Forum for American Leadership that put together a really excellent paper on different strategies that can be used to um, counter the inflow of, of fentanyl. Um, that is not just invade Mexico, which is what some people have been suggesting. Um, so it's a really thoughtful paper that I encourage everybody to read. Um, did, okay, great, so we'll go to Maggie. No, 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 you're fine. We'll bring you the mic. Thank you so much, Congressman. Um, thank you so much for a really meaningful and intentional nuanced conversation. Um, and I was struck by something that you said, I think, in reference to Ukraine at first, um, that your constituents, you know, don't want to sacrifice their own safety uh, to pay for someone else's. And um, that you've put a lot of effort into explaining we can do both. Um, and I've also been listening to you, and, and I suspect maybe this comes from your journalist background, but do you think that there is hope for the argument that their safety is our safety? Well, exactly what I mentioned about we can fight the war there or we can fight the war on our own soil. So by helping support our allies to deter conflict across the globe, number one, but also in a case like this where we've had American citizens in Ukraine for years, and I was uh, actually at a send-off ceremony for the Iowa National Guard when they got called into active duty to go to Poland, right on the border with Ukraine. So we have Americans in the region uh, serving with our allies. So that to me means we're, we're, we're already invested in this conflict. We're invested in making sure that um, uh, military around the world are properly trained and that we need to do more of that, right? Because I think that is, uh, you talk about peace through strength, it's making sure we're prepared and being prepared is the best deterrent. So um, that's what I, I, I meant by saying, hey, I think number one, people need to be aware that we're already there and we're already invested around the world. Um, we have diplomatic operations and we have military operations around the world for a reason. And it's, it's to deter conflict, but it's also to make sure that we can help uh, our allies when we need to. Um, I want to ask one question, and then we'll go over to this one here. Um, so just speaking of, of preparedness, um, you talked a little bit about the defense budget. Um, but in addition, there's huge problems with our defense industrial base, um, including 
not only that China is surpassing the United States in, in um, its buildup of the Navy, um, its buildup of the Army, uh, and many other areas, um, but also the fact that many of the things that we need to create our equipment in the military is sourced originally from China. You know, it will have critical minerals whose production lines are owned by China. So what do you recommend as the key things that Congress and this administration should be doing to prioritize the development of our military so it is prepared to defeat and deter China? I think if there's one thing that's come out of uh, many of the, the meetings and the hearings and the roundtables that we've had on the China Select Committee, it's that there is a lot of room for improvement and process in the Department of Defense, um, in, in acquisition, in um, in approvals, I mean, I think approvals are taking way too long. You got too many cooks in the kitchen, so to speak. And we've heard this time and time again. So I think that needs a serious look. Obviously, anytime you come in and disrupt anything like that, you're going to get some pushback. But I think at this point, it's too important for us to to um, to not take action there. So I think process improvement is definitely needed. Uh, but people need to know that we're willing to make the investment and we're willing to make those commitments. Um, Who's going to prop up a major defense operation and manufacturing operation if they don't have the commitment that it's going to be there for them? So um, I think that that, number one, is um, going to be a longer-term strategic thing that we need to look at is longer-term appropriations for those specific things to make sure that they understand that that resource is going to be there and be finite. Um, but but you are right when you talk about the investments that the Chinese have made. Um, when we did war games to, to kind of plan out what would happen if— um, if we end up in a conflict with them over Taiwan, it was very, very scary how quickly we would be out of munitions, for example. Um, they have been prioritizing energetics, uh, the things that make everything go boom, um, for, for many, many years, and uh, we have not. So I think that it is very, very clear we need a, a paradigm shift in thinking in terms of preparedness, um, because again, 2027 is the, the kind of magical year that China has said they potentially could be ready to invade Taiwan. We need to try to push that out as long as possible. And every day that President Xi looks at Taiwan, looks at our preparedness for engaging, looks at our allies' preparedness for engaging, and says, I'm not going to poke the bear today, that is a that is where we want to be, right? Because uh, we need to be making those investments to, to end up with that interference. Peace through strength. We have time for probably two more questions, so we'll go to this one, and then I saw one hand over here, and then that'll be the last one. Go ahead. Thank you, Congresswoman Henson. Um, I'm actually from Cedar Falls, Iowa. I was just there last week. Blackwood uh, County. That's right. That's right. It's a great county. My family uh, sends their thanks for what you're doing here, and uh, I grew up watching uh, KCRG TV9. So That makes me feel old. <laughs> <laughs> well familiar. Uh, my question is on some of these middle power countries, the Saudi Arabias, the Indias, and just curious to hear your thoughts on how we can draw them out and use those relationships as we talk about China, talk about counting Iran's influence as well. Thank you. Well, and certainly we're seeing already some um, some American businesses choose to make strategic moves to not necessarily fully decouple with China, but uh, de-risk, so to speak. I think that's where there is great value in continuing to develop relationships with those countries. Um, they have vast resources. They have great energy. Um, they can help support uh, uh, manufacturing that, for instance, we otherwise would be relying on China for, and now we can maybe be relying on India or Saudi Arabia for. Um, and I think that that is a, a, a much more um, strategic way of trying to, to look at solving this problem. So I, I think there is great value in continuing those conversations. Um, I was 
going to be on a delegation trip in early October, but we had some challenges in the house. We were paying attention. Um, so we were going to actually go to China to try to start having, or not China, India, to try to start having some of those conversations too about how we can further that relationship. And we welcomed, obviously, Prime Minister Modi to the United States earlier this year. So I think that um, there is great potential there for continuing to enhance our relationships in the region. And last question back there. Thank you so much for your presentation. I'm, I'm George Bogdan. I'm at White and Case. <clears throat> and I just wanted to ask briefly about arms control, because I noticed that within eight days of the Biden administration beginning arms control talks with China, um, there was a high-level meeting between China and Russia in which they criticized uh, NATO and specifically the nuclear umbrella that it has. And so I'm wondering whether you perceive that there's a kind of manipulation uh, perhaps going on in, in how China is engaging with the U.S. on, on arms control. Well, I think manipulation is a good word for it, um, but I would also say we just need to take China not for what they're saying, but about how they're, what their actions are, right? And I think this is a prime example of it. Um, this is why I think we need to focus on um, competition instead of diplomatic appeasement, because look what happens when we do that. I think it projects weakness, and I think um, the best way here to project strength is, again, focus on accountability, being strong about um, challenging their relationships with other countries and what they're what they are doing, not what they're saying to us. And so I think that's what that, that's the heart of the Great. Well, thank you all for, for joining us today. Uh, we want to be sensitive to everybody's time. Uh, I want to thank once again uh, Congresswoman Hinson for, for joining us and for your remarkable leadership in Congress. Um, I also want to thank the Vandenberg Coalition team for pulling this event together, uh, Winning for Women for their uh, support, as well as King and Spalding for the use of their beautiful space. So thank you all for joining today and for, for listening online once this gets put up. Uh, we really appreciate your support and hope you enjoyed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.